So I've uh, I, I shared this before, but I've been watching some animal videos, and uh, it's it's sort of a interesting pleasure of mine. But I I watch very particularly certain type of videos. Um, it's videos of predators and prey, uh, the lion, crocodile leopards they're usually going after buffalo or antelope or different different prey animals and uh it's there's one particular predator animal that uh every once in a while comes up sort of on my feed and i don't really like them that much and you know it's the wild dog the wild african dog they're sometimes there are all these african dogs and what they do is because they're a pack animal, they will find a prey, such as, say, um, uh, an antelope, and they'll just surround it and start nipping at it at all different angles until it just completely is devoured. And it's, it's just really bothersome. But the reality is that these animals, these dogs, and all predators, they act on instinct. No matter... What you might think about an animal, for example, being eaten alive, that's just how they're created to be. That's what they do. And it's, it's just the nature of that type of predator. Uh, when I was um, reading about World War II, there's a lot of stories about Germany where once the Allies started bombing all of the different homes in Germany, a number of the people had been killed. But often what survived were the dogs, and they were domesticated dogs, German dogs, schnauzers, dauschans, German shepherds, you know, poodles, all sorts of dogs of all different sizes. And because there were no owners anymore, these dogs that were kind, and I know some of you, you have dogs. You love your dog. Some of you love your dog too much. You love your dog sometimes more than your own children. <laughs> you know, and you might think, you know, my dog is the best dog in the world. It will never harm anyone. It's always so kind and just so loving. Well, a lot of these domesticated dogs that no longer had owners, they sort of reverted to that pack mentality, very similar to the African dog. And they would actually start going around of all different breeds coming together and go to different homes because they needed to survive. And the only meat they had were dead people who had been killed. And so they would just eat people, dead, wounded, whatever they could. They reverted to their instincts. Now you might think that's a really morbid illustration. But the point of it is to say that all animals at the core because God created them to be that way, and they are not soulful in the same way that we are because we're created in his image. Dogs are not. Animals are not. They always act ultimately upon their own instinct. And God is the one who gave them that instinct. And so there's a lot to learn about life through animals. It's why... Human history has shown this to be the case. We see it in Aesop's fables. Even today, Disney so often and cartoon characters are often animals. 
Because there is this fascination with this idea of an animal instinctually in some way reflecting human characteristics. Proverbs does the same thing. What Proverbs does is it takes these animals and it looks at their human characteristics that in some way reveal something about God, something about us as human beings, and something about us living together as human beings. And when we explore specifically a passage like today, we see these animals that are given to us, we see their instincts, we can get a little bit of a better idea of who God is and how we're to live together and how we're to live wisely together. So with that said, I'd like to look at these four animals. The four animals are the ant, according to verse 25, the rock badger, verse 26, the locust, verse 27, and then the lizard in verse 28. The first animal described in this passage is the ant in verse 25, and it says this, the ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. Some of you have experienced ants in your home. They are not fun. And you know, what you'll find is that no matter how hard you try to get rid of them, they always seem to make their way back. No matter how many cans of raid you use, they will come back. Even at this church, we've had ant problems here. And we've hired exterminators. And they oh, the exterminator always has the same message for us, which is, you know, we can try to maintain them. But just to let you know, you can't get rid of the problem. They always make their way back. They are very, very persistent. And they can come about in all different circumstances. It's one of the reasons why the Proverbs writer uses the ant as an illustration for us. Because ants, especially a lone ant, is pretty defenseless. They might they are strong proportionately to us. I mean, an ant can lift proportionately far more than we ever could. But really, a, a small little child can step on an ant and it's gone. But the point of Proverbs is to say that there's wisdom in an ant because no matter how hard you try to wipe them out, they always make their way back, always persist. They will, and sometimes you see this, they will carry away, especially if you're having a picnic, you'll see an ant come by and pick off a crumb that's quite larger than itself and make its way out, always working so hard in the summertime. So the Proverbs writer takes this characteristic specifically of understanding time and persistence, perseverance. And the ant knows that in order to survive, they have to utilize and make the most of their time. The way they do that is to plan for the future by living in the now and working hard and laboring today, always keeping in view that winter is coming. Winter will definitively come. There's no doubt about it. And so they work hard right now. We're told, according to Proverbs 10.5, very similarly, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. There is a tendency for all of us in some level to procrastinate. It's always this idea that I have enough time. I mean, we can see that in school. If the professor or teacher comes and says, your final exam is going to be on this date, and it's a few months away, and you think, well, I have plenty of time. 
And so we hold off, we wait, and then a week before, or maybe a few days before, suddenly we're cramming, studying hard. Whether you're in school now or you've been in school before, you know that scenario. It's not so unfamiliar. Or maybe you have a certain time. Maybe it's worship today. You know, you had to be here at 11 a.m. And so if you have a larger family, you, you target that time. And if you wait and continue to wait to prepare for it, you'll find that you'll come late because the procrastination of it, rather than laboring to prepare now for the future, we sort of delay it. And that's sort of the nature of what human beings are if we are not regularly aware of the significance of time. The point of the ant is to show us that if you have a future perspective, it should impact the way that we live today. And in this instance, wisdom from a biblical perspective is having the future perspective of eternity. If we don't have that perspective, it will sap the urgency of what we have today. That's called faith. Faith is, according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things not yet seen. And there's a man, according to Hebrews 11, that had that type of faith, and his name was Abraham. Abraham was promised by God that I will make your descendants like stars in the sky. You will be a great nation, and it's going to come through your son, and his name is going to be Isaac. You know the story. Along comes this one day where God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son up to this mountain. He gets to the mountain, and at the top, he says, I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, how does that work in conjunction with the idea of you're going to be, uh, this son of yours is going to be the father of a great nation? That just doesn't compute. How do you become a great nation but kill that very person that you said that you're going to be a great nation from? Abraham had to have this incredible amount of trust in the future. And according to Hebrews 11, it says that he believed that somehow God was going to even raise him from the dead. That's a real, real picture of what the future held and how it would impact his present, meaning he would have to take his knife and drive it into his son. That's really difficult. But that's what ant-like faith, ant-like uh, labor looks like, is that when you believe the future is real, it impacts the way that you live today, especially when you know there's going to be a winter coming, when there is going to be hardship and challenges and trial. How do you persist? It's not going to be by willpower. It has to be a certainty of faith in the future. And according to scripture, it's faith in knowing that you're going to be with God eternally forever. So how do you prepare for that? Well, I think it's sort of like the ant. The ant stocks up food when things are well. And for many of us, this is a good time. Things are relatively well. And so it's during these times that you are even more faithful in your preparation of your heart through God's word regularly and coming to him. Why do we read scripture? Why, does, why the mention of the 
this idea of coming and preparing your heart, going to him in God's word, in prayer, in sharing the gospel with others, with yourself. Why do we do that? We do it because we take stock of what is now to prepare our hearts for the future, for the winter to come. And the winter will come. There will be a day where suffering will come, where your health will deteriorate, where tragedy will strike, where you will lose your job, where difficulties of, and I, I just constantly hear of parents who are just at a loss for rebellious children. I'm talking even adult children who have turned completely away from the Lord. How do you deal with that? Well, it's today. It, are you taking and making the most of every opportunity through God's word, spending time with him? All of that is the preparation of what is to come and a faith to trust that that will keep you in the midst of the struggles. Are you an ant to today preparing your soul for the winter? So that's the ant. The second is the rock badger. Verse 26, the rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their home in the cliffs. After the first worship and I preached this, someone looked up a rock badger on Google and showed me. And uh, you see it. If you, go, if you Google it and you look at the images, you'll see the rock badger is always in the midst of rocks. I mean, the rock badger is sort of this rodent-like animal sort of a plump head, cute-looking, gopher-like in a way. And they live in groups, but they are always in the rocks. The reason is because they have natural predators, pythons, eagles, mountain lions. And so what can the rock badger do against them? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, they don't have big claws and big teeth. They don't run super fast. You know what they do? They, they hide in the rocks. That's it. That's the only thing they can do to keep safe, but it keeps them safe. And they can get into these little spaces in the rocks that these eagles and snakes and mountain lions cannot get into. The rock badger, essentially, they know where their security lies. They know where it's safe. If a rock badger decided one day, I'm not going to run anymore. I refuse to take this. I'm going to fight. I'm going to face that mountain lion when I, when I see him. Well, that rock badger is going to be dead meat, literally. The rock badger's wisdom is always that he runs back to the rocks because he knows where his weakness is and he knows where to run. As I had said, I watch some animal videos and the, the most vulnerable animals of all, even if they're predatorial animals, are baby animals. Lion cubs, um, leopard cubs. Doesn't matter, even if it's a baby snake, baby crocodile. All of them are essentially prey at that point. And what keeps them safe is obviously the mother. The mother keeps them safe. But there are instances where a lion cub will stray too far from the mother exploring or different. And what they do is they will go and not recognize that there's a predatorial hyena hiding in the grass, waiting for that lion cub to just stray a little bit too far 
from the safety of the mother. Wisdom is recognizing that there is only one safe, secure place. And to move away from it is completely dangerous. There is no more safer place than to be under God's security and power. The psalmist regularly speaks of this. David talks about this. Psalm 18.2 calls God a rock, a fortress. Psalm 17.8 describes God as one, uh, the psalmist as one who hides in the shadow of God's wings. Wisdom knows that God is the ultimate safe place. He provides safety and nothing else does. David in chapter 18, verse 2 of, of the psalm says this, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold. Basically, David's saying, God, you are my rock and I'm the rock badger. I mean, really, that's what he's saying, right? You're my fortress. You're my stronghold. You're my deliverer. You're the one I hide under. But that's really the temptation for us is that we look for other things to hide under. We are like the lion cub that sometimes thinks, I can go my own way. I'm strong enough now. And, you know, if I get into trouble, I'll hide in the grass over there. No, you won't make it. You will become prey. And so when we hide, perhaps under our bank account, our, our saving up for retirement, maybe all of the homes or all the, the different investment you know, arms that we have that we've protected ourselves from a really down economy. And we think, as long as I have that, I'm safe. We just spent the past two years trying to fight for safety. Safety from a, a pestilence, right? Pestilence has been around for a long time. And it will continue. Whether it's HIV AIDS, uh, coronavirus, monkeypox, and the list goes on and on. And future viruses that are going to come. If your thinking is that as long as I'm safe from that, and I'll do whatever I can to protect myself, you are a rock badger not finding yourself hiding in the rocks. You're thinking a patch of grass is safe for you. Your family is not your safety. Your parents, your children, what school they go to, it's not your safety. Far too often we think that the safety comes in getting the right career or being in a right relationship. If I get married to the right person, then I'm safe. Scripture here shows us that's exactly not true. It's deadly. You are dead meat, eternally speaking. And as you pursue that, you will find yourself all alone and vulnerable. The Lord tells us that He's your safety. And you know, perhaps the greatest deception of all as to what is our safety is ourselves. I can do this by my own strength, by my own power. I'll protect myself. I'll be the one who guards everything, makes sure everything is okay. All it takes is an earthquake, a tragedy, our health to deteriorate, a job loss, something in our lives that will come that will eventually show you we've believed in a lie. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments, I suppose that in many ways it can, be truthful, uh, it can truthfully be said that the greatest need of men and women in this world is the need of what is called a quiet heart, a heart at leisure from itself. It is so the case that our hearts are regularly trying to say, trust in this, trust in that, and if you do, life will be good for you. But that is such a deception and a lie. And it's keeping you from being truly a rock badger, from finding what is truly safe for you. Your own strength will not do it. You will lose your soul in the process when you try to find safety by yourself. You know who was a rock badger in the Bible? The thief on the cross. Here's Jesus in the center of the cross. And he wasn't just suffering the physical agony of the cross, which was really bad enough, but infinitely more is the spiritual agony of bearing my sins and your sins and the sins of every single sinner who's ever placed their trust in him. That's a lot of burden. You know, think about it this way. When you feel guilty because you've sinned, it's a really heavy burden. That guilt multiplied by your whole lifetime, multiplied by every single person who's ever believed in Jesus is what Jesus bore on that cross, that burden. So he's there, he's dying, and you have this thief on the cross next to him. And he's, you look over, practically speaking, Jesus is not really in a position to help you. I mean, he doesn't look like a fortress there at that point. The other thief on the cross sort of had it right when it comes to looking at it practically practically and pragmatically, which is, you know, Jesus, you said you can save us. Well, come on. Why don't you do the job right now? We need you most. And it doesn't look like you can because look at you. You're, you're pretty messed up. You're just as messed up as I am. But the other thief, he realized, you're my security. You're my strength. I mean, he clearly did not look like that. But he knew that deep down, looking at the, this Jesus who was not only suffering, but suffering for him, he was able to see that he's my security. He's my strength. There is no other religion in the whole world that thinks this way. I mean, it is so radically different that either Jesus truly is, as C.S. Lewis says, liar, lunatic, or Lord. It's the only answer that the thief on the cross would have had, only to see Jesus as truly the rocks amongst the rock badger. Do you really think your money and your career and your retirement savings and your awesome pursuit of your friend group and your good health is going to keep you safe? Really? If you do, you're in for a rude awakening. There will come a day where all of that will come crashing down. And you will be no more safe than a small rodent animal that could do nothing to protect itself than being in the midst of a patch of grass where a mountain lion or an eagle can swoop it up in a moment rather than running to the rocks and saying, this is where I'm safe. Jesus says in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
trust me, I'm your safety. I'm your fortress. I'm your strength. Everything else, let goods and kindred go, as Martin Luther says. Next is the locust, verse 27. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. Now, the locust is a really small, ugly bug. It's, and it's not powerful at all. It looks, I mean, it looks gross, so therefore people get freaked out about it, but it, it's not able to do much. So if you want to, you can squash it. I know some of you would say, no, that's not what I'm going to do. But you can. You have the power and the ability to do it. One locust can't really do much damage. But locusts, when they come in a swarm, it can destroy an empire. It has done that historically. And so when they come, they will wipe out a whole amount of crops to the point where a people will starve to death. That's the power that the locust has. It's the power of community, of working together, of joining together with a common purpose and goal. And we must never underestimate that power. It is tremendous. Alone, you'll be squashed like a bug. Together, it can overturn the greatest of military powers. In August 2010, locusts destroyed more than 35,000 hectares, which is 135 square miles of farmland, about the size of Philadelphia, and had left about $37 billion in damage. Locusts have this power, and so the Bible uses locusts to describe this. Paul sort of takes this idea of community and says in 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4, the power of the unity of the church, of gathering together, banding together for the purpose of the advancement of the gospel and bringing it even to the ends of the earth. But what fights against our unity is Satan himself. He will work and does work tirelessly to dilute the church's power through compromise, by attacking leaders, pastors, who fall and turn away from the Lord, and therefore you have whole congregations just completely disintegrating. We have a disease like COVID coming in, and then everyone watches online, and after a while, you just continue to watch online because, hey, I, I get my fill. That's all I need is I can just turn on YouTube and go to sort of pick and choose the pastor I like, the speaker I like, the worship music I like, and that's all I need. That's, it's a really powerful weapon that Satan utilizes, which is divide and conquer. And he's doing everything he can to make sure that we never come together for the purpose of the advancement of the gospel of Christ. But he knows full well, if we should do that, then nothing can stop us, truly. It's the power of the locust. Lastly is the lizard. Verse 28, the lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Lizards are strange in that way. Uh, they, they really do appear in ways that you could not imagine. I've told this story before, but um, when our kids were young, they caught a lizard and, in the backyard, and uh, they put it into a plastic box, and m my wife was... Um, kind enough to try to puncture some holes, breathing holes into the box. 
but she was using a Swiss Army knife, and it didn't lock the blade. And so as she was doing it, the blade just went, cut her tendon, and she had to get hand surgery and all that, and it has nothing to do with the story fully. <laughs> just, just a cool side part to it. But here's the thing is that with, despite all the blood and all the, this, you know, going to the ER and everything, we thought, okay, at least the kids got the lizard. The next morning, the lizard somehow escaped from the box. This is a plastic box with a top that was snapped onto it. And we, it was, you know, I don't know how, how that happened. It's the amazing power of the lizard. It really is that they can escape from anywhere. And no matter how hard you try to keep it, it just doesn't appear that way. They, they can get in to king's homes. You know, king's homes, they have guards, military guards. They secure the place. But yet a lizard will appear in king's palaces. It's the point of Proverbs, right? It's not supposed to be that way. A lizard, generally speaking, especially in certain places, is a very normal creature. And it just appears. They're ordinary. They're normal. Look to your left and to your right. I know it's awkward time, but those people next to you, they're normal people. I know you say, but no, no, no. Some are really, no, they're normal. Everyone here has, mostly has two ears and two eyes and, you know, some hair and uh, you know, just we're ordinary. But here's the thing. Ordinary people, normal people, they don't belong in king's palaces, but yet they're there. And that paradox is something that the Bible just regularly points out. How is it that ordinary people are now welcomed into the throne room of the king's palace? The only answer is that they're not supposed to be there. There's, it's not supposed to be like this. But yet, we are there. It is the paradox of the gospel that sinners are with the king, a perfect, holy, just, righteous king. But the only way is that there had to be a price paid. The price was the price of God's own son and his shed blood. Romans 5.10 says that we were once enemies, and now we're welcomed in as sons and daughters. We are found in the throne room of the king. It's really a marvelous thing. This is this wondrous paradox. So we know that Hebrews 13, 12 tells us this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus, who was royalty embodied, suffers outside the gate so that we who are outside the gate are welcomed into the, the throne room of the king. And it took Jesus being outside for us to be welcomed inside. That's a paradox. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. And it is that gospel that provides wisdom. It shows us how we are to be like the ant, to have a picture of the future perspective, of understanding that that's our eternal goal. That's our destiny. And so if we have that as, a, as our destiny, by faith, we live a certain way, always keeping that in mind. If we have this paradox in mind, then we will always run to the king. We'll always know, like the rock badger, that he's the safety. He's our security. 
He's our power. He's our strength. And we'll never trust in anything. And we will not, we will refuse to trust in anything other than that reality. And it, it's also what causes us to band together. We're united not on the basis of ethnicity, socioeconomic class, how much we've learned, our life stage. We're united because of the reality that there's this paradox. We don't belong, and yet we're together. And that unity is what can wreak havoc on Satan's kingdom, like the locusts destroying whole nations. So may this truth, this paradox, that you are a lizard, you are there in the throne room of the king, and as a lizard, you're just a really happy lizard. You're really excited to be there. And we're giving glory and praise to our God forever because of all that Jesus has done being outside the camp for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the cross. As the thief saw and believed, and saw Jesus as the security, even though the other thief saw only a man crucified, no different than himself. But he, this thief saw the security that comes only in Christ. And we who do not belong in the throne room of the king, somehow we made our way in. And we know how it happened. Jesus Christ, your own son, his blood was shed so that we might enter in. May we never forget that truth so that when we come to this table today, we do so mindful of that reality. In Jesus' name we pray.